either person or Ederson had a big name Porky. This big name Porky loved pie. He loved pizza pie, pumpkin pie, pineapple pie, pizza pie, mince tarts. And Peter Perswell Patterson's big porky loved pie for breakfast, pie for lunch, pie in the afternoon, and pie before he went to bed. Peter Perswell Patterson's big porky ate so much pie that do you know what he did? He popped. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm happy to announce that I have re-entered the restaurant business. Mm, I like your last restaurant, so what do we got? All right, get ready. I am opening a super fancy deli with a highly curated selection, and it's called Pecorino, Arugula, Capicola, and Jones Soda Limited. Wow. I, uh, quite the model you got there. It's going to be great. We're going to have so much goddamn arugula. Get ready. <laughs> arugula. Well, if you need any light reading for your new restaurant, Sean, I have authored a new book. Ooh, perfect. Let me tell you, it's, uh, it's called A Little Bit of Me, A Little Bit of You, the possibly true story of how Jeffrey Dahmer almost joined the new monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I think my guests are going to love that. Yeah. I, yeah, I have seen it stated as fact in what would purport to be reputable sources that Charles Manson did audition for the monkeys in 1965 and that is impossible because he was in prison in the state of washington i think in the year 1965 you know i'm supposedly a reputable source but i have stated that as fact to many people in the past and i'm sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> you're part of the problem i'm absolutely part of the problem with this one <laughs> That's why well, I put possibly true in my book title. That was wise of you. Yeah. After all that research, it was still possibly true. <laughs> yeah. We live in a post-truth world, so it's, you know, it's up there. As yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. You, you can't completely prove that it didn't happen, so therefore. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? Could be. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I... I'm just a loudmouth Yankee. That's it. Wow. No wow. jobs, just a loudmouth Yankee. Just a loudmouth Yankee. Huh. Well, that's three Yankees. Do we have anyone else here? Yeah, I'm here. And I, I'm Leora Haas, and I don't really have to question what I'm doing hanging around because I've spent the past 37 years thinking about the monkeys daily, nightly. Oh, wow. Perfect. <laughs> I could see you, you, you think about your titles for the podcast daily, nightly. <laughs> your intros. 
I, it's, it was an easy setup. What can I say? Yeah, that's why you're back yet again, Liara. Thanks for coming back and joining Sean, Jeremy, and myself, co-host Peter Cook, on I'd Buy That for a Dollar for the third time, I believe. They say the third time is, uh, is what is it? What is the third the time? The third cut is the deepest. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> oh, that's what I thought, yeah. Yep, we figured that one no, out. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be back to uh, to talk about, well, who we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, why don't you... Tell the people who and what we're talking about if it isn't clear already. Well, we're talking about one of my absolute favorite bands, The Monkees. And we are going to be speaking about their fourth album, which is titled Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. Uh, indeed, from November of 1967 on the, is it pronounced Coal Gems label? That's how I pronounce it. Yeah, I think that's it. Now, I, th I, I don't know if we established yet that uh, as Jeremy alluded to it when he said that we got three Yankees here. You know, the last couple times you've dialed in to us, Leora, you've been coming in from Boston. But where are you right now? I am in beautiful, beautiful Great Britain. I'm in the UK at the moment in the West Midlands, and I've been hanging out, making some connections here. And um learning a little bit about uh, what kind of records sell for a dollar in uh, in the record bins here. So um, I can tell you right now, there's some great record shops here and I've met some great people and and uh, some folks may or may not be tuning into this podcast too. Uh, so I'm trying to, uh, you know, spread spread the I'd buy that love here. That's that's really my mission yeah. and, and why I'm over yeah, here you, now. You were sent as our international ambassador. <laughs> Yes, happy to help. Stealthy. It's, I'm very stealth as I as I say, you know, I've got a good podcast for you with my hand on my hip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how fitting that on an episode about the monkeys, we have three people in the States and one in the UK. Oh. Perfect. Oh. oh, I didn't even think about that. Well, where are we going to start? What song do we want to give people a taste of the monkeys to start off with here? We're going to start off with a track titled, What Am I Doing Hanging Round? This is a really, really interesting song to me. This is a, a Mike Nesmith vocal. So um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Monkees uh, albums, typically all four members, um, which also for those who aren't familiar, the, the Monkees members were uh, Vicky Dolenz, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, and Peter Tork. And each one of them, you know, had a presence on the album um, and, and they each typically contributed vocals, although some, uh, depending on the album, were uh, more prominent and featured on, on more songs than others. But this particular song uh, features the vocal stylings of Mike Nesmith and um, some interesting history behind it, too. So I'm not sure if we want to get into the song first or let's get, talk about the history let's, a little let's bit. Get, or? Yeah, let's get into the song and then we'll talk about the history after they hear it. Sounds good to me. All right. What are we doing hanging around? Let's do it. Yeah. Side B, track two. Just a loudmouth Yankee, I went down. I didn't have much time to spend about a week or so There I lightly took advantage of a girl who loved me so But I found myself thinking when the time 
I should be riding on that train to San Antonio. What am I doing hanging around? She took me to the garden just for a little walk. I didn't know much Spanish and there was no time for talk. Then she told me that she loved me not with words but with a kiss. And like a fool I kept on thinking of a train I could not miss. What am I doing hanging round? I should be on that train and gone. I should be riding on that train to San Are you guys ready for confession time? Yeah. I love my little confessions into the microphone here. Prior to yesterday, I've never intentionally listened to the monkeys. <laughs> like, you, you'd never thought, I want to listen to the monkeys and actively listen to the monkeys. Like, yeah. Yeah, I... For all the reasons that are probably obvious from a Jeremy mindset, you know, I'm not into the Beatles. In my brain, the monkeys are some weird TV made-up version of the Beatles. And I was just like, I don't have any interest in even seeing what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) And this is my confessional. Well, well, having, you know, with, with that being your background with the monkeys, uh, how did you feel having willingly participated in listening to them with this album? I felt a lot of tension. I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit baffled because the music it's portraying in like psychedelia and folk, it like does it better than most things in that era (laughs) and that just like made this weird dissonance in my mind with the little shreds i know about the monkeys it's like that thought plus the only other like bit of information i know about the monkeys comes from sir tom sharpling of the best show Mm -hmm. he's the host of a a long-time radio show called The Best Show where he tells the story about getting, like, really snubbed by Mickey Dolenz after just, like, pouring his heart out to him. Yeah, I've heard him recount that a couple times. Yeah, and that's all the info I had to go on. So I'm just really left in a state of confusion as to how to feel currently. Mm -hmm. What are you doing hanging around, Jeremy? (laughs) I think you're probably far from alone on having some of that confusion with this group, though, because the impression that I get is outside of, you know, the true monkey heads, that a lot of people don't understand how good this band actually was or how much depth there was to their songwriting. You know, just from an outsider perspective, people have probably heard, you know, at least a few of the hits, Daydream Believer or something like that, and maybe just kind of passed them off as a 
a fluffy dated pop group and yet there's so much more yeah and that uh, that right there was cl- clearly a country rock song remember we said this came out in 1967 that predates graham parsons releasing stuff commercially who's often seen as the godfather the pioneer of country rock yeah yeah there was a few times on this record where i'm like wow this is 67 like they're kind of on the cutting edge here. This is yeah, not what I expected. On, on multiple fronts, and we'll we'll get to more of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, this al- and this is a good this is a good album to you know I think for those who have that what I would say is kind of the common universal perception of the monkeys. If you aren't someone who's you know you're not ahead. that's it's common that yeah they're just this fluffy manufactured beetle-esque pop group and they are a lot more than that and that's a reputation they've been fighting against since day one from what i've read yeah yeah absolutely leora continue the fight I'm just over here reeling, you know, Jeremy, it's like you're Lisa Simpson and I'm Ralph Wiggum and, and you, and I'm over here. You can pinpoint the exact moment my heart broke into when I heard you say that you have not listened to the monkeys. Um, I, I have to agree with Peter and Sean. I think that as a whole, they were a very misunderstood group who you know, the, the whole concept of the monkeys began as a, a TV show and really the musical component portion of it was a byproduct of that. And so, you know, these guys were cast to act in a TV show while, you know, enjoying some semblance of musicianship. And I say some semblance because, uh, some members were more skilled musically than others, and so, you know, there was a lot of pressure. I, I hate using the term package because that's one of the terms that, you know, the band fought against. But really, you know, when they were packaging up this quote unquote product, which is another you know thing I hate to say, but for lack of a better term, there was some talent there. Whether that talent was allocated and used in the right places is a whole other question. And so it's very, um, you know, it, it's just a very, very interesting story where there's talent there. You, you see this group wanting to take creative freedom, wanting more artistic freedom, breaking away from those chains somewhat, but, you know, still being, um, shackled and, and, uh, required to handle the business in in certain ways because of contractual issues. And, you know, it was really an uphill battle for them. And I don't think that they got a lot of the musical recognition, that they deserved. And especially with this album as well, I think Peter, you said that, um, or Sean said, you know, they were in the cusp and the forefront of a lot of, a lot of things, you know, a lot of different genres and, and musical breakthroughs that were perhaps taken to other levels by other artists after the release of this album, but they were there. And I think that one of the other items you need to consider when thinking about the monkeys is yes, you know, there was talent there. Again, I repeat, it wasn't necessarily allocated in the right places um, for what the final product as we know as the monkeys would be. 
For instance, you know, Mike Nesmith, even though he's a good guitarist, you know, he was more skilled on the bass and, and Peter was the bassist. And Davy Jones was actually uh, the most skilled out of them to be the drummer. But <laughs> due to his height, he didn't really fit the bill yeah. on the screen tests yeah. for, um, for, for positioning the band to perform on the show. So they put Mickey and, on the kit. You know, that's right. And they put Mickey on the kit. With no, and, you know, Mickey with no drumming experience, right? That's right. That's right. Like <laughs> Mickey had to learn. And even, you know, when he did learn and did perform on actual tracks, when the band got to a point where they could express um, that creative freedom and, and actually engage in the musicianship themselves, you know, he did it for a bit. But then, you know, he almost grew, from what I understand, he almost grew tired of it. And he's like, all right, yeah, I'm done. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and I remember reading a quote somewhere saying that, you know, he wasn't necessarily the strongest link mm-hmm. when, you know, putting together some of the tracks for the albums as far as the drumming went. So, I mean, yes, there were challenges, but I think at the end of the day, what we need to remember is that, you know, there was some talent there and, you know, these folks were partnered up and paired up with some of the best of the best, which I know Peter, you know, will get into as well. But, um, you know, they were partnered with very skilled musicians, mm-hmm. incredibly skilled songwriters. Yeah. And yeah, that song we just listened to, What Am I Doing Hanging Round? It was sang by Mike Nesmith. He did not write the song. He did write, he's a very accomplished songwriter and he'd even, you know, written Prior to this, and prior to the Monkees, he had been in a band with a guy named Owens Boomer Castleman called The Survivors. And when Nesmith left to join the Monkees, he was replaced by a guy named Michael Martin Murphy, who uh, Michael Martin Murphy and Owens Castleman were the songwriters for What Am I Doing Hanging Around. He had asked them to write a song for them and and that's what they came up with and he loved the the country edge to it do you think michael martin murphy's rap name would be eminem and m <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> eminem and m yeah i think he and nesmith went went back a while maybe maybe school days don't quote me on that i think they may have gone back on school days but um you know the track is is really to me when i hear that you know, when I was younger and first discovering this record, you know, I liked the song. Yeah, I knew it had a country flair to it, which wasn't necessarily my thing back then. But I knew that there was something unique and different about it. And to me, you know, being a kid, nine, ten years old, hearing this song, I, I was like, wow, this actually makes country sound kind of cool to me if you, if you put some rock to it. And I thought that was um, one of the unique factors, you know, going back into my nine-year-old brain. I, re- I remember thinking that, mm-hmm. you know, and then this style obviously went on down the line and later in years, you know, what, what is it? It's like a proto-country, proto-rock, you know, country rock song. Yeah. Which I don't, I, I guess I would say in recent years has, has become in fashion. Yeah, well, it was not in fashion when the Flying Burrito Brothers and Graham Parsons were originally around. They were not popular. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely it was, not. It, you know, it was probably the, the Eagles that solidified it as a commercially viable thing. Yeah. Re- realistically. <laughs> and Nez, as uh, he was so uh, thoughtfully called, you know, that was his nickname was Nez, Michael Nesmith's. He was originally a Texan. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was obviously heavily influenced by the type of music that he was surrounded by. But, 
I think that he was a real advocate for trying to push this particular style to the surface. And not only was he a country guy, but, you know, he was interested in the blues and, and rock and, and kind of that rockabilly thing, too. And, and I think that he was just very excited about uh, about pushing a boundary with with this particular track and this song. And Michael Martin Murphy, I learned, was well, he was a songwriter, as you mentioned, but he wrote a song that I've always in my adulthood found kind of interesting. He wrote a song. And Peter, I don't want to steal your thunder on this one if you if you were planning on commenting on this, but um, he wrote a song called Wildfire. And that is a song, you know, he was kind of like a, a considered to be more of a country songwriter and, and wrote songs that had more of a, you know, a country or a, a Western theme with horses and what have you. And I always found that song um, Wildfire to be interesting because, yeah, I mean, it's a song about a horse. But in the in speaking of, you know, genres that have recently or, or in more recent years come into fashion, everybody seems to really love, love or hate the yacht rock genre, if you will. And and I feel like that song Wildfire is sometimes thrown into the whole yacht rock kind of genre, which is curious to me because, you know, it's yacht rock. We want to hear about water. And, and this is about a horse. And I, <laughs> Picture the horse in some Midwestern plains somewhere. So the juxtaposition of that is interesting to me. But I thought that was a pretty cool fact about this song too. That um, that he had that connection. You got to ride your horse to get to the yacht, though. See, that's the connection. Uh, oh yeah, of course. And if you yeah, that's how I get to my yacht. If you have a fully legit yacht, you can you know fit a horse on it and ride around on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I do know that song. That's a 70s classic that I don't know if you really hear many places anymore. I remember Gene Ween citing that as a song that he loved as a kid hearing on the radio growing up, Wildfire by Michael Martin Murphy. But going back to Michael Nesmith, just it's a I think it's maybe somewhat commonly known that he his mother is the person who invented liquid paper, aka whiteout. I, <laughs> yes, that's correct. That is correct. And he's admit I believe he's admitted that in in um in interviews in the past. Yes. And it's it seems to me that he inherited ingenuity and innovation from her. Not only was he a country rock pioneer, but he also was kind of a music video pioneer in that he had made a music video for his song Rio in the mid 1970s. He went on to this whole country rock career after the monkeys he had the first national band and all kinds of stuff and that video was popular and it led him to consider tv programming that consisted entirely of music videos and he came up with this concept called pop clips it was a very early nickelodeon show that was one of the first cable television shows to show music videos and it's considered it was like a forerunner to mtv and he also won the first grammy for a music video he also produced some movies, including Repo Man, ah. <laughs> the, yes. the, the cult classic that we've probably referenced a few times on the podcast, and Tape Heads as well, which was also an 80s cult oh, classic. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, you have to. It's Mike Nesmus all over the place. 
Yeah, he was he was a very smart man, and and one of the things that I really appreciated about him, I mean, he was active on uh, he was active on on his Instagram account actually through the end, and I was I was a follower of his. He sadly passed on December tenth of of twenty twenty one. One of the things that I found really interesting about him is is you know he was one of those people. You know, it kind of reminds me of the vibe that Bowie had, where he was always interested in, you know, the next big thing and the potential of the next big thing and how it could impact the future and, and technology and what have you. And, and, you know, he was he tried to stay hip on music as well. I say hip, I sound like an old lady. But one of the things that I remember in recent years, like he was a big Vaporwave fan. <laughs> and he would post Vaporwave uh, videos and, and songs to check out on his Instagram, which I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you know, and, and, and and I think he, uh, he may have, um, you know, he may have smoked pot here and there. And, uh, you know, I just have this, this vision of, of Nez, you know, hanging out, smoking some pot, listening to some vaporwave and sounds like a, sounds not bad. (laughs) Yeah. That's impressive. I feel too old for Vaporwave. I've tried a few times and I'm like, I just don't get it. I'm an old man. Uh, You haven't lived until you've accidentally put on Lamal's never ending story on the wrong speed. (laughs) Huh. That's a trip. That's a Vaporwave right there. Well, we've, we've talked about the fact that Michael Nesmith was a songwriter. He, you know, he, around this time wrote, uh, he wrote the song Different Drum, which was a hit for the Stone Ponies featuring a young Linda Ronstadt that was launched her career. So not only was he making country rock music in the monkeys, but he was helping out others who were early to that hybrid genre. But he he was a great songwriter all around, and he wrote the next song that I think we wanted to feature daily, nightly. It's written by Michael Nesmith, but lead vocals by Mickey Dolenz and another instrument in the mix played by Mickey Dolenz that we'll talk about when we come back. Let's do a little bit of that. Daily Nightly, Side B, Track 4. But no. 
my gosh, so trippy. What'd you guys think of that? Daily Nightly. This is, uh, as you mentioned, Peter, this is a song that was penned by Michael Nesmith. This is a really, you know, this, this is what we were talking about during our last segment where this is a band that was on the cusp of things to come. Uh, you may have heard that this uh, song incorporates an instrument that I know uh, you on the show are all fond of, the uh, Moog, something that has been widely discussed uh, before on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. But um, yeah, uh, Mickey Dolenz had taken a particular interest in the Moog and Rumor has it that he was one of the first uh, 20 people to own Moog Synthesizer. And what's really great about this track is that, um, you know, the Monkees had partnered with uh, Paul Beaver to program the Moog, uh, both on this song and on another uh, Moog track that appears on here called um, Star Collector. But Mickey Dolan's actually played the Moog and, and uh, the Moog parts on this song. This is a song that, that it, they're trying to make it uh, relevant to the times. It's trippy. It's out there. You know, there's supposedly a meaning to it. It's a commentary on the Sunset Strip curfew riot. So, you know, there was a cultural shift happening. And the Monkees were based in, in Los Angeles, really, although they did a lot of vocal recording in New York, but they were primarily based in L.A. And a lot of the um, fe- the fellow artists who they were adjacent to, you know, these were Canyon people. And they were friendly with a lot of these these guys who were, you know, out there making this change. And so... It was just, uh, it was an experiment. I find this to be a very experimental, trippy song. I feel like I'm rambling, kind of like how I feel when I listen to this song. It just kind of rambles on. Peter, <laughs> help me out. <laughs> like, Yeah. And it seems that there is debate as to if this was like the first recording, popular recording to feature the Moog or not, but it's definitely very early on. Yeah, it's absolutely early on. I think we referenced this song specifically once or twice in the past about, yeah, Mickey getting his hands on uh, one of the first Moogs and all that. Yeah, when we did our Beaver and Krause episode. Yeah, we were, yeah, yeah. Right. I think he might have seen their, their demonstration at the Monterey Pop Festival in nineteen in the summer of 1967. That's and right. that, that was how he got turned on to the Moog. And here it is. I... I I have to wonder what Monkeys fans thought when hearing this, when buying this record in late 1967 when it was released. I, I have to wonder, you know, they still, their core audience was teenage girls at that point in time. And, the, you know, they had, when they had tried to branch out and do cool experimental things before it hadn't really always worked in their favor. The previous album headquarters, you know, they had, they actually did more of the writing and playing on that than I think they do on this album, but they had also secured Jimi Hendrix as their opener (laughs) on their, on their tour in mid 1967. And I think that lasted for about, seven shows because you know Hendrix comes out they 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 had also seen him at the Monterey Pop Festival and that was his introduction to a wider American audiences because although Jimi Hendrix is American you know he had established himself in the UK with Chaz Chandler from the Animals had kind of hooked him up and 
gotten the Jimi Hendrix experience together over there. So that was the big American debut of the Jimi Hendrix experience was at the Monterey Pop Festival. The monkeys see that. Whoa, mind blowing. You know, they they were looking for the cutting edge stuff. That's what turned them on. And especially I'm sure they were always uh, eager to show that they weren't just a fluffy pop band. So here they yeah, they have Hendrix go out and open for them and the you know the all the audience is just yelling, We want Davy, you know. <laughs> they are not <laughs> oh into this yeah. guy making this wall of feedback and noise <laughs> going into purple haze and so yeah, it's uh they were always trying, you know, of course the the movie that they've put out, I believe, the year after this, the head is one of the strangest mainstream films ever released <laughs> yeah there's a contrarian thing going on that like that was definitely the aspect of it that was making me like this more and more i like you said i can't imagine what the audience of this was thinking listening to this like some of the lyrical content is like pretty you know heady and this right here is like a socio-political thing yeah yeah there's some like legit politics going in there not just like winks to the hippies like well thought out politics and i was really surprised by that and uh, i just read the tiniest bit on how they were basically hired to just be actors and they had like other musicians initially playing the songs and they were like, nah, we're actually going to play the songs." So <laughs> yeah, they have this contrarian nature that does appeal to me. <laughs> yeah. Something I wanted to touch on too. You mentioned how they had primarily studio musicians early on and then kind of took over later. I feel like this band in a lot of ways had this unfair reputation of being like, oh, well, they're not a real band because they, they didn't even play on any of their albums. It's like the the thing you will hear people say and have always critiqued this band for. And yet they didn't really ever do that more than any other band of their time. People forget that at this point, if you were a pop band or basically any kind of a popular band in any genre at this point, you were primarily using studio musicians. Um, But there's always just been like these, these groups that get singled out. People either feel like they're punching down like maybe on the monkeys or punching up at like the Beatles or something talking about how Bernard Purdy played more drums than Ringo started in the Beatles. And you hear like stories like this, but it was just how the industry worked, you know? It must have been very challenging for them, you know, because the whole concept of the TV show in general was inspired by the Beatles, Hard Day's Night and Help and and that sort of energy, which combined these acting vignettes with these super hyper bursts of musical uh, vignettes. And so, you know, they they were kind of, you know, just coming on the heels of the Beatles and the concept of, of this program. And then you know, they put out this album where they're, where they're trying to um, continue to assert their power, right? Because they were going in that direction on their previous album, Headquarters. And, and here they are with seemingly more artistic control on Pisces. And they released this, but um, there were Sgt. Peppers. So, you know, they're incorporating all these interesting styles and dynamics on this record. But then, you know, the focus all comes on Sgt. Peppers anyway, and it seems to be like, it's okay if the Beatles do it, but if the monkeys do it, you know, is this just a watered down 
commercialized version of, of, you know, their statement on what's going on culturally around them too. Now, was it this one or uh, headquarters that came out like a week before Sergeant Peppers and was like remained at the number two spot for a long time after that? Headquarters would would have been released around the time of Sergeant Peppers. Right. Yeah, this album was after Sergeant. I think um, Sergeant was May of 67 and this is November. So, you know, who knows when this, how long this was in production for or what have you, but sad trombone for the monkeys on that. <laughs> yeah. And I was reading too that like there was not a lot of expectation on them being a real band or songwriters. And while the TV show was happening, they were spending like 12 hours a day working on it and seven days a week oftentimes. And they started writing their own songs just like while the sets were being changed over. They had instruments there and just decided instead of sitting back on this this gig that they had that was making them tons of money, they're like, no, we want to improve our song craft and like work on this band at the same time. Yeah, I think the instruments were there that they were using on set and they were just like, okay, let's plug these in and give them a whirl. And, and there's probably a lot of energy when you're awake for that long anyway and flitting about, <laughs> yeah. you just kind of go with that, right? So Do something constructive. Yeah, exactly. Keep it going. Well, speaking of keeping it going, how about we get into the next selection? What was that going to be, Liara? Oh, we're, we're going to follow this up with a lovely little ditty called The Doors Into Summer. This is my favorite one. So Is it? Yeah, I liked to I I've been liking to identify my favorite song on the album since we <laughs> cover them lately. It's a the thing. official Jeremy selection. <laughs> side A track three. The door into summer. Let's do it. With his school's gold stacked up all around him From a killing in the market on the war Julie looking might as there As they found him in his counting house Where nothing counts but more And he thought he heard the echoes of a penny whistle band and the laughter from a distant caravan And the brightly painted line of circus Wagons in the sand Fading through the door into summer With his travel logs of maybe next year places As a trade-in for a name Upon the door And he pays for it with years He cannot buy back with his tears When he finds out there's been no one keeping score And he thought he heard the echoes of a penny whistle band And the laughter from a distant caravan Brightly painted line of 
side Fading through the door into summer Beautiful harmonizing from Michael Nesmith and Mickey Dolan's there and someone else was in the mix with them does anyone know who what well-known musician was singing with them on that track i saw a list of some like heavy hitters that were working with them around this time i don't know which one it was i'm gonna take a guess was it nilson ding yeah harry nilson all right he actually wrote one of the songs on this album as well cuddly toy Uh, He was brought in by the producer, Chip Douglas, and he was just getting started in the music industry at this point. He Hmm. and he uh, Harry Nilsson became close, lifelong friends with Mickey Dolenz. Imagine that. That song was actually credited to Chip Douglas and Bill Martin. They're credited as as the songwriters. I guess Chip Douglas claims he I think it's Chip Douglas that claims he had no part in it, but he had been recruited as producer by Michael Nesmith, who had seen him working with the Turtles. And the story went that, you know, Michael Nesmith was like, hey, we'd love for you to come produce the monkeys. And Chip Douglas was like, I've never produced anything in my life. And he was like, oh, you'll be fine. It's kind of like that story of uh, (laughs) Marty Ballin from Jefferson Airplane seeing Skip Spence in a club and going up to him and saying, hey, you're my drummer. And Skip Spence was like, (laughs) I'm a guitarist. And he's like, no, you're my drummer. Come and play with us. You'll be fine. Like, Apparently, sometimes uh, other musicians just can look at someone and know what they would be good at, even if they haven't exercised that skill previously. And it seems to have worked really well. I think the production on this is fantastic. Chip Douglas also plays bass throughout much of this album and the monkeys on headquarters as we previously mentioned their their previous album had really made a point to play the instruments to prove that they could do it but because of how busy they were with the television show at this point they kind of scaled back to i think work on more of the innovation on the record and were less concerned with proving that they could play their instruments they'd already done that so there are session players in here on um, most of the drums are by a guy named fast eddie ho and he's he played drums on several well-known rock songs and albums you know by donovan the monkeys uh he had performed with the mamas and the papas at the monterey pop festival in 1967 he participated in the Highly acclaimed Super Session with Mike Bloomfield, Al Cooper, and Stephen Stills, that collaboration album that maybe one day we'll cover that one. I think that's still a relatively cheap album. But strangely enough, it seems that by the early 70s, Fast Eddie Ho just fell out of the music industry and remained out of the public eye until his death in 2015. And I couldn't really figure out exactly why that happened. But Mickey Dolenz does play drums on a couple cuts. One of them is the aforementioned Cuddly Toy that was... Jeremy's least favorite song. (laughs) Funny (laughs) enough, the one penned by Harry Nilsson. Oh, weird. Yeah. (laughs) And on The Door Into Summer, the song we just listened to, that was Mickey Dolenz and Eddie Ho trading off on the drums. Yeah, I think they do. I think that there there may have been some uh, taping up of, of Mickey's drums. (laughs) Yeah. The banjo that we heard on 
What Am I Doing Hanging Around was played by a guy named Doug Dillard. Are, is, are any of us familiar with that name? He's a like country bluegrass guy, right? He's the guy who had the Dillards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and he had the, was it Dillard and Clark with Gene Clark? That's where I knew his name from, mainly. Nice. So, yeah, big time name, big time player. Yeah, like you said, country bluegrass. So, yeah, they, you know, they had some people augmenting their sound on this album, but, and they didn't write too many of the songs, but it still feels very much like they're in creative control and doing a lot of forward thinking. Yeah, I just, I'll I'll say um, regarding this song, you know, all these years, hearing it, I always thought, oh, it's sailing through the door into summer. You know, it's like this nice, easy, breezy, beautiful song kind of reminds me of, again, you know, that Canyon vibe where a lot of their peers and contemporaries were, you know, they were all spending time together. But I did look into um, the derivation of this song title, and it's actually, I was very interested to find out that it came from a... um, a Robert Heinlein book called The Door into Summer, which is a, a sci-fi book all about time travel. So when commenting on the song, Bill Martin said, you know, yeah, this is a song about time travel. And I just thought that was interesting. So I'll probably check out that book, which is apparently a hyper-realistic, very science-oriented science fiction type of book, like real factual kind of stuff is what um, Robert Heinlein was into. But I also found it interesting that in the recording studio, and this may or may not be true, but I've seen photos of Mike Nesmith in, uh, well, I call it a loo now, or the toilet, but in the, in the men's bathroom <laughs> recording. Um, I think they were trying to get the right vocal. Whether or not that is the case for this particular track or not, still uh, maybe up for debate. But regardless, a photo of Mike Nesmith in a men's uh, urinal stall does exist with a microphone and a music stand. well sean i'm gonna turn our attention to you and ask if you came up with some similar recommended albums i did real quick though before i get into that i just want to mention that the guy who did the cover design on this record bernard yezin was actually working for motown around the same time and did a bunch of famous motown album covers like mary wells temptations supremes and then the same year, he also did the artwork for Brenton Woods' Oogum Boogum, which is cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And also Del Shannon's The Further Adventures of Charles Westover in 68. That's a classic. Yeah. All great artwork, too. Very talented guy. So, recommended similar albums. We mentioned The Turtles. Definitely put The Turtles Happy Together from 67 on there. I think that's a great comparison. Another underappreciated pop band from this time. Yeah. And then, you know, we talked about the early combining of country and rock and psychedelic music. And the obvious comparison there for me is the Birds, Notorious Bird Brothers from 1968. One of the, you know, one of the records you can find for a little bit cheaper from the Birds. Sweethearts of the Rodeo is another great country rock example from them, but is usually a little more expensive. And then finally, an album that we featured early on in the show, The Beach Boys Today from 1965. We talked about how that was a transition from their more straightforward pop into their more produced and psychedelic and experimental music. So I feel like kind of a a comparison to this, you know, the 
the monkeys are, are reaching out into new territory and going beyond their simple pop sound from earlier. Through the door of summer. Exactly. Very cool. Well, I feel like we just scratched the surface on the monkeys, but we've kind of come to the end of the road here. Well, I think that for our listeners, if you went into this with a preconceived notion that not to Peter's put, motioning towards not me, not to put you on the spot, Jeremy, <laughs> but if if you went into this with a preconceived notion like Jeremy had of the monkeys just being this fluffy Beatles ripoff, hopefully what we've the samples of this record that we've given you have changed your mind a little bit. It's definitely worth exploring more of their catalog and. You know, I, I I think that there's a lot more music-obsessed people nowadays who know just how good the monkeys are than, say, 40, 50 years ago. But uh, you can still find these, you can still find these relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. They're priceless to me. <laughs> well, Liara, thank you so much for dialing in from across the ocean and uh, talking some monkeys with us. Uh, glad to have you back on. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And honestly, you know, I couldn't have said it any better. There is a lot to cover with the monkeys and this is barely the surface. So the story continues. I encourage you all to kind of seek out and and research more or, you know, learn about them because um, there are a lot of great songs. There's incredible catalog of release songs from back in the day and from the vaults, they've been rediscovering and releasing. They, they recorded, they were just so prolific. They recorded so much that, you know, in, in more recent years, there have been undiscovered songs that they've been, uh, that, that they've been releasing and putting out there. And, and I think that there are, there's a lot to compare from back then to what is happening now in the music scene as well. So I think they were definitely underrated and um, well, near and dear to my heart, obviously. Yeah, that record that they put out, it was really only about six or seven years ago when both Peter Tork and Michael Nesmith were still alive. Uh, Davy Jones passed away about 10 years ago. But that Good Times, that was a great record. I did not want to go there because I was a monkey's purist, but I ended up going there. I have to admit, it's a phenomenal record. And I think the songwriters, um, I think there was somebody from Weezer. Yeah. And um, the guy, uh, forgive me, his name eludes me, but the the gentleman um, who's no longer with us as well from Fountains of Wayne had a heavy hand in that as well somewhere. And um, Adam Schlesinger. Yeah, I can't pronounce it now. Schlesinger. I I think I butchered um, it too. (laughs) Workshosh and Appleshosh. They really did a phenomenal job of, of, um, you know, recreating that essence and that vibe of uh, songs that I imagine would have been written for the monkeys back in the 60s and, and giving them just enough of a modern twist to make that sound recognizable and present day as well. So I really wanted to, to really despise that album, but I love it. It's wonderful. All right. Well, I think we've done as much as we can here, unless anyone has any final things they want to get in before we go out on our final song. Let's hear that song. <laughs> but what Liara tell us what the final song is going to be well it is a Pleasant Valley Sunday indeed um, we're going to go out on Pleasant Valley Sunday little ditty composed by a couple of songwriters from a building you may or may not have heard of listeners uh, called the Brill Building and it was Carol King and Jerry Goffin and 
They wrote this song, Pleasant Valley Sunday, which was actually, um, I believe, the only charting song or charting single from this album. And um, I always pictured this being a song about some valley in California, but in reality, it was uh, written, according to Carol King, it was written about her experience moving to, uh, to I think, West Orange in Jersey. So a little different content than what I expected, but the sentiment is the same nonetheless. Yeah. This is a one of their better known songs, and I think it's always it should clue people in to the fact that the monkeys are worth checking out. You know, you hear this one on the radio, it's like there's something here. That, this is a legit band. One hundred percent. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Check out all the monkey stuff. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Radio Ruggles. <laughs> nice callback to Lero's last episode. And I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Liara Haas. And it's a Pleasant Valley Sunday. <laughs> there we go.